This is Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm Jim Hamblin. I'm a doctor and staff writer at The Atlantic. And I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a comedian and I'm a writer. Can I just tell you one quick thing that's happening in Ireland before we jump in? Oh, yeah, sure. Maybe, I don't know if it's on the news over there, but our health service executive got hacked really badly and they're trying to bribe, it's like a Russian hacking. What? And they're trying to bribe the Irish government. Yes. Wait, what is the health service executive? So it's not the health board, but it's like a lot of hospitals are affected and, you know, I don't know what the equivalent in America is, but I think it's like... It's a federal institution. Yeah. Like our Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, like it's like the ones who organize the the paperwork. Because mm. now, like lots of people's appointments have to be cancelled. Luckily, they didn't hack the vaccine rollout. So that's something. But they did. Basically, what my friend who works in the hospital said is they have to now run around with all the paperwork. So like. If you get a test, they have to like physically bring it around and they have to physically bring back the results. And it's like the whole, a lot of hospitals is like gone back to the 1970s. Haircuts and everything. Oh, wow. (laughs) Bell bottoms? (laughs) Yeah, bell bottoms, which are not hygienic Uh, for the... uh, No, because yeah, they they catch all kinds of fomites. Um, Yeah. Floor mites. That's wild. Why would Russia attack your health service executive oh because they're just trying to get 20 million actually i don't know if it's 20 million euro or 20 million dollars but they're trying to get you know it's like ransomware oh Mm -hmm. gosh yeah and i guess they did it because they know right now in a pandemic the poor hse is so you know frantic so they were maybe just hoping they'd pay the money so they could capitalize on the terror and yeah, uh, sadness that so many people are feeling. Yeah, wonderful. So mean. It's a great plan. It's so mean, but the thing is, they're not going to pay. But they do have to go through each server one by one and like check that it's not infected. So Man. I know I just really feel there for them. So many like there are so many huge <laughs> faceless corporations that are profiting off of uh, terrible things that you could choose to hack. <laughs> Why do you choose to hack uh, a, a government health? system during a pandemic that's trying to keep people from dying isn't it the worst i i don't know but um which ones would you suggest that i hack or you know that (laughs) (laughs) which of these corporations (laughs) that's what the podcast is now you suggesting no i mean i i don't i don't endorse any particular crime but i Mm -hmm. think that uh you know sometimes there's a a bit of a robin hood mentality to such crimes and uh, that doesn't seem to be the angle here (laughs) not this one it's just like cancer patients and like really nice nurses and it's just a disaster yeah that's so sad i know and you know what else like the irish media is just using so many outdated images of hackers like it's like a grid you know like (laughs) (laughs) there's like a photo you know like with a grid (laughs) and like a bad guy with a balaclava at a laptop (laughs) and that's (laughs) that's depressing me too at least it's a laptop, not like one of those old desktop computers <laughs> with a really deep monitor and just like a green pixelated screen. That, I'm going to send you one. There's actually that exact thing as well. <laughs> <laughs> They're only missing like, you know, like a, a girl with like a silver wig on or something. That'll be next year, I suppose. But anyway, so that's what's going on over here. But 
Jim, did everyone just like throw their masks up in the air like a kind of a graduation ceremony? Like what's happening? <laughs> Things changed very quickly outside in New York after this CDC guideline, which really? we, we mentioned last week. Yes. And I'll be really curious to see how that plays out generally because, you know, I don't think people needed to be wearing masks outdoors. But, you know, once you remove them, suddenly there are very few people that you, who you see out on the streets wearing masks. It just seems like it quickly could change the people's ambient sense of safety in ways that are difficult to predict. Hmm. Just the act of walking around seeing everybody wearing masks reminded you that this of the pandemic and to be careful mm. and everything. And um, you have these instincts to just behave normally when you don't have that signal. These orders are, are so much more complex than like just <laughs> they seem on the surface. You know, they're always these second order and third order effects of behavioral change that are difficult to predict. So uh, we'll, we will see. But mm -hmm. cases are very, very low right now in the U.S. No, it's so, Strikingly it's low. It's really great. Like I, we're getting a lot of questions. I might just read you one question from a listener, Larissa, in Virginia. She asked you really, Jim, wouldn't it have been more accurate for the CDC to have waited to say that it's safe for vaccinated individuals to return to normal activities in public until more of the population is vaccinated? So there's been this really interesting tension between you know, a, a lot of really science-minded people who say things like, oh, the advice that you need to wear a mask when you're outside alone by yourself is not based in science. And that's true. Yeah. But then there are these second-order effects of like, well, how do you actually draw a line? How do you enforce it if you're only having some people wearing masks? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just much harder. And so swinging in the other direction, which even if it's based in science, where you're saying like, if you're vaccinated and you're, you don't need to wear a mask, mm -hmm. it's actually really hard to enforce because we don't have these vaccine passports we talked about. People are not, mm -hmm. you don't know who's vaccinated, who's not. Restaurants, theaters, schools, they're not going to be able to know who walks in the door mm -hmm. if they're vaccinated or not. So um, it's difficult. Remember no. those like that three in one vaccine that some people got, it leaves like a big, a kind of a raised bump on your arm. A childhood vaccine? Yeah. Is it MMR? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but it maybe it only leaves marks on some people. I don't know. Well, <laughs> temporarily you have that. Oh, yeah, but that's no good. Yeah. This has been the thing all along with mm -hmm. mask guidelines. Is it's just it's really hard to have them be extremely scientifically based because people would constantly be like taking them on and off in very specific situations where they actually help or aren't on or aren't necessary and if you start quibbling about about that it um it becomes this like labyrinth of rules yeah <laughs> and it was just easier just to say just wear a mask if you leave the home yes you know yeah there's a possibility that people will think they don't need masks at all anymore and that remains to be seen mm -hmm. well it's again it's like one of those things that is like almost fun to talk about compared to the rest of the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, here at the moment, it's not too bad, right? Like we're still in lockdown, but, you know, people in their 60s are getting vaccinated. But then in other parts of the world, obviously, there's people dying of COVID every minute of the day. 20 million more vaccines been promised by the US. And it seems like the US is, is doing more for the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, 20 million, you know. Mm. India alone, there are more than 2 billion people who need to be vaccinated. It's, I mean, it, I'm not saying it's nothing. It's great. Yeah. We have a long way to go. You know, I actually asked someone about this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have a little clip of it. Do you want to guess who? 
Well, Dr. Fauci? No, you you didn't speak to him again, did you? No. Okay. Uh, it was a Surgeon General, oh, yeah. uh, Dr. Vivek Murphy. And he, he said something that is actually kind of breaking with what the administration's line has been mm-hmm. up until very recently. So I think we have a clip of that. Together as a country, we've got to do several things. Number one, knock down barriers to the production of high-quality, low-cost vaccines. You know, and I know that the Biden administration has announced uh, its intention on behalf of the United States to support the TRIPS waiver, which is a waiver of intellectual property protections for vaccines, uh, to help again reduce one more barrier to developing vaccines at scale. But but there's a lot more that needs to happen. Uh, just simply waiving the intellectual property rights does not guarantee that billions of doses of vaccine will be available. We have to invest, number one, in expanding manufacturing capacity, and second, in facilitating the technology transfer, the know-how needs to actually flow from the people who are making it now to those who will make it. We need to improve the supply chain for raw materials so that we can actually create uh, these vaccines. Just having facilities without raw materials doesn't quite work. And we also need to ensure that we have robust distribution channels uh, in countries so that we can get the vaccine to actually where where people are as opposed to waiting them for them to come to a few discrete locations. Um, and then more broadly, we have to think about how we create the infrastructure globally for us to be able to create large amounts of vaccine, again, at scale, when in the next pandemic comes. Um, you know, we learned this lesson actually from Ebola um, back, you know, several years ago, that the health of one nation is tied to the health of all nations when it comes to infectious and disease pandemics. And we've certainly seen that with COVID again. The question is, once we're through this, when the next pandemic comes, will we be better prepared as as a global community? Will we have the relationships to lean on? Will we have the facilities to both detect outbreaks early enough, as well as to produce and develop and produce at scale the vaccine necessary? Wow. He says, like, when the next pandemic comes, he says that two or three times. But um, Jim, you know, when he says, like, we need to create infrastructure globally, what did he mean by that, do you think? I would have loved to ask more about that. Mm. But the that was not the pretense of our interview. Mm. It was about actually happiness and Ooh. isolation and loneliness during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like we could get much deeper on that. Hopefully we will in the future. But I think the topic of isolation and the trauma of the pandemic is now becoming a central focus, especially in in the US where, Mm -hmm. you know, focus is shifting away from like the acute risks of getting infected and toward the effects of this past year of so much loss and loneliness and just changes all around. And it's a period of beginning retrospection here. So for your interview, you asked him about kind of mental health, like that's well, happiness, loneliness. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he wrote a whole book on kind of how, how that's central to uh, everyone's health. And, and it, is so his, especially now. Is his, yeah. um, so he's a surgeon general, but he like wears an army uniform, but I don't think he was ever in the army. Like what is his, and, and he mentioned there like the Biden administration. I thought he was in that administration. Like what's his um, <laughs> job or role maybe? Yeah. The Surgeon General is an interesting spot. Mm-hmm. I guess he's not, he was appointed mm-hmm. by 
Joe Biden. I don't understand the reference to the Biden administration. Okay. But he doesn't have an official policymaking role. It's a sort of, he is an advisor to the president and the Surgeon General traditionally is sort of just in charge of public health messaging. They're a public face of the nation's doctors. And yeah. it's largely a, a, a communications job. The uniform I'll have to get back to you on. If any listeners want to explain, hmm. call and explain the uniform. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, he... I wanted to ask him if he slept in it, but uh, <laughs> it felt it was inappropriate. I <laughs> like how you slept. Uh, you slept in your tuxedo. No, did you sleep in your tuxedo before a wedding one day? Did I dream that? Oh. <laughs> no, I just was like, I went. I flew in a tuxedo oh. because I didn't want to bring any luggage or... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a stone cold weirdo. <laughs> I just made a one day trip to a friend's wedding. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. So, but you put it on that morning. Okay. I get it. What's the, the working class section of the airplane where your just body is I like... Don't, I don't know. Crumpled I, up. I don't know what that <laughs> Yes, you do. Economy section where you're just sitting there with like a tiny plastic cup of like fake champagne. God love you. No, of course. I, yeah, I've never flown first class in my life. No. Okay. But Jim, why were you talking to him about mental health and about loneliness and about happiness? That was, that was not for this show, right? Um, No, it was for an Atlantic event um, that's happening actually tomorrow Mm -hmm. about isolation loneliness happiness in this current moment and that's what we're talking about today brilliant yeah um i want to hear more about that i'm gonna go to that event i i think i have to pay it's called in pursuit of happiness and it's a virtual event it's free for most people but (laughs) you will have to pay comedians have to pay (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, we have staff writer Ed Yong, who has been covering the pandemic, has been on the show several times, and he has a new piece coming out this week about the trauma of the pandemic in the longer term sense, especially in this moment as things are starting to uh, rapidly in the U.S. return to normal. So uh, let's call up Ed. Hi, Ed. Hey, folks. How's it going? Hi, uh, hi, lovely to meet okay. you. Hi, Maeve. Yeah, meet, meet Maeve. Mm-hmm. Hello. <laughs> Hello, I'm a big fan of your appearances on this show. Oh, thank I you. Feel, yeah, in a creepy way from <laughs> listening to you and reading you, I feel like we're friends. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> that. We go way back since the start of this call. <laughs> <laughs> We've been through yeah. so much together already. <laughs> right? Oh, old Ed. That's and right. Maeve. Oh, Maeve. <laughs> I hate to break up the uh, old friends gathering here. Uh, um, so, Ed, you have uh, finished working on a book ahead of deadline. That is amazing. Yeah. It, it turns out when you report on COVID for like nine months straight, not only does that equip you to uh, do a ton of writing very quickly, but also Hmm. all of that writing, because it's not about the pandemic, just feels like you're going to a spa. It just feels (laughs) wonderfully relaxing and restorative, which I think like exactly zero people have said about writing a book before. Yeah, no, that's really, really impressive. Um, What is the book? The book is about the way other animals sense the world around them. 
So the way like dogs smell and elephants hear and um, and and all the rest. So it's a it's a tour of our shared reality through the eyes and ears and noses and all the other great sense organs of the creatures that we live on the world with. What a funny time! It sounds so cool, and what a strange time to be writing it too, right? Especially you know, like one of the symptoms and COVID and long COVID is people who lose some of those senses mm. and. It struck me as a time when it seems that a lot of people are struggling to empathize with their fellow humans. So I think like mm. getting people to try and empathize and stick, get into the mindsets of other animals is an interesting task, but I think also an important <laughs> one for that same reason. Yeah, like a little bit of empathy overload. So uh, now you're back from working on your book and, mm -hmm. and writing about the pandemic again. And uh, yeah, that's not too, too <laughs> jarring, but you have the... Uh, <laughs> your your uh, first piece back on the subject is is about the the trauma of the moment and how so, are you defining the trauma of the pandemic? Yeah, I, I think um, this has clearly been a intensely stressful fourteen months. The pandemic uprooted so much of our lives. It caused sickness and death. Like I say in the piece, there is a. Um, you know, an ongoing debate among psychologists and psychiatrists about how to define the word trauma. And one of the people I spoke to mm -hmm. talks about um, like big T and little t trauma. So big T are, is like what you would officially classify as trauma. So like um, death, injury. Um, so people who've mm -hmm. uh, obviously um, been very sick from COVID, people who've lost um, loved ones from COVID, and then there are all the, the sort of little T traumas, the things that we might colloquially call traumas that are undoubtedly influential on our mental health. Um, things like you know, losing a job, you know, being isolated from your loved ones, um, being trapped in this sort of atmosphere of fear and uncertainty for a, a long time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't really want to make that much of a distinction between those two things. Like both of them were keenly felt over the past 14 months both of them influenced the mental health of people who are you know who have lived through the pandemic and and both of them are things we think we still need to be talking about now it's amazing that you you know you list all of these things and sometimes even when we talk to people on this show they're so careful to point out like well yes this did happen to me but it wasn't as bad as you know, right. X, Y, and Z, like, I don't even want to mention specifics because everyone is in this kind of like, oh, I can, I can handle this because it hasn't been the worst thing that's happened. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that happening. When you see the sort of full scope of the pandemic, it's sometimes easy to sort of minimize what you yourself have gone through. And, and mm. I think um, for people who haven't really dealt with mental health problems before, or who are sort of used to a normal baseline of stress. Mm -hmm. Dealing with something very unusual like the pandemic can actually be very jarring. Like they don't, they, they almost don't expect to feel as stressed out or as bad as they have done. And this could be anyone from like doctors and nurses who obviously have a very stressful job. Um, mm -hmm. And it could be parents um, who, you know, are used to just the, the baseline rigors of, of being a parent, but maybe not used to having to do that 24-7 without any child support in the mm -hmm. midst of this crisis where schools are shutting down and you know like the pandemic ramps everything up to the nth degree and it's not surprising I think that even people who think of themselves as sort of hyper competent folks who are caregivers who are used to dealing with stress have found these months very very hard. Absolutely. Yeah there's um 
Or Jim, I was going to say to Ed about that line in his piece, you know, if you've been swimming furiously for a year, you don't expect to finally reach dry land and still feel like you're drowning. Mm. And that really, you know, that really hit us, I think, like, because it's not just snapping back and everything's fine. So do you feel like this applies to, I mean, everybody, like you said, but especially sort of healthcare workers and other folks who've been on the front lines? Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a very common experience. I don't think it's going to apply to everyone. Like some people maybe are listening to this podcast are just going to be fine. And to them, I, I feel joyous and happy. And, and I hope that it continues in that vein. But I know that a lot of people have been sort of running on adrenaline and running on fumes for a long time and they've now hit this point in the US mm -hmm. specifically where things start are starting to feel a bit better um, you know people are feeling a bit safer vaccinations are rising cases are dropping and yet now when they finally got a chance to exhale they're finding it un unexpectedly hard and and actually I don't think that we should be surprised at that like um a lot of the literature from other kinds of disasters or other kinds of um, traumatic experiences, um, including soldiers who return from war, um, you know, healthcare workers in the in the aftermath of of, um, of a crisis, we see that people, mm. when they get a chance to breathe, often finally get a chance to look around, look back, and think about everything that had happened to them in the times before when they were just sort of trying to get past. And it's in those moments when you really get to take stock of actually how tired or, or anxious or stressed you've been that a lot of people suddenly collapse in a way. Mm -hmm. People who I've spoke to who work on trauma say that this is a, a very common experience. And I think it can be all the more jarring because we sort of don't expect it. You know, we expect that when things are better, we will feel better. <laughs> but of course, how we feel right now isn't just defined by the current moment, but by everything we have experienced in the past. Um, and everything yeah. we've experienced in the recent past has been kind of awful. I hate that about our brains. They just collect it all up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they, they collect it all up. And in some ways it's unfortunate. But, mm. um, you know, in, seen in another way, like integrating across all your past experiences and using that to determine your current state of mind you could just call that learning right like that's <laughs> yeah that's also a, a, in many ways a totally reasonable <laughs> way of of acting and i think it causes problems when we forget that that's how our responses to grief and loss actually work it's not just the case that things get better and people just snap back into their previous normal behavior. We, we mm -hmm. need to sort of collectively allow people who are struggling in this moment to have the time to not feel so good. Yeah, yeah. That's something I've heard doctors advise people, especially older people after a significant hospitalization, you know, for any for anything mm -hmm. in normal times, a pneumonia or a, a fracture, that mm -hmm. you don't, ha you shouldn't have the expectation that life is going to go back to the exact same way that it was. You've been through something and it's going to be slightly different now, but it doesn't have to be in a worse way. You just need to think uh, that there will be a change. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Do Did you get any insight from you know, people you spoke to in, in covering this piece of, about how to navigate that in post-pandemic times, I mean, thinking about things as they're not going to be the same as they were, but you can still find ways to be okay. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, sort of on, on an individual level, I guess just just even acknowledging that that is how things might play out is really important. And it sort of goes against some of our popular conceptions of how grief and coping work. People I talked to spoke about this um, very popular five-stage model where you sort of cycle through clearly defined stages of denial, uh, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And that model mm. is wrong. Like That's not actually how people mm. cope with traumatic events. So there are no discrete stages. They don't occur in a linear cycle. They can take a long time to resolve, and that resolution might not take the form of acceptance. Um, yeah. So I think like just having a, a better understanding of, of the nuanced and meandering ways in which our reactions to these problems will play out is really important. Right, so we can actually start thinking about numbers of people who might be experiencing prolonged effects of pandemic trauma. So we know, for example, at the height of the winter surge, we had 132,000 Americans who were hospitalized. Based on what we know from past coronavirus epidemics and studies coming out of Italy with this one, we know around, roughly around a third of those people will probably develop PTSD, which works out to be about 40,000 or so. We also know that at least 580,000 Americans have died from COVID. Each of those deaths on average leaves nine bereaved close relatives, so parents, children, siblings, spouses, grandparents. In general, about 10% of bereaved people develop prolonged grief disorder, which means that your grief is intense, it's incapacitating, you don't get over it even after a year or more. So that means that we'll probably have about half a million Americans who are experiencing that kind of severe, prolonged, intense grief, which is the population of a reasonably sized city. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of people. And here, I'm only really talking about those big T traumas. You know, mm -hmm. we're not talking even about people who are grieving friends. We're not talking about long haulers who are still experiencing symptoms, not talking about um, folks who are dealing with all the little T traumas like um, unemployment and isolation and all the rest. And those and, um, people who were hoping to start families who kind of lost that time and yeah, there's so right. many. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The, the year of life lost for so many people. Mm -hmm. you know, um, students who, who were looking forward to graduating and starting college, um, you know, people who, whose businesses were on hold for a year. It's, there's so much loss. The, it, the rhetoric of individual resilience only gets us so far. It, it almost mm -hmm. shifts the blame away from institutional failure. You know, we've talked in the show about the, the systemic failures that allow the pandemic to, to spread readily in the United States, but there are now going to be systemic failures that affect who gets access to care, who, can, mm -hmm. who has the time and the, the capacity to actually heal. Um, you know, we, we're now entering a phase where employers are forcing people to return to the offices, where people will increasingly want to seek mental health support for everything they've experienced, but will run headlong into the dramatic dearth of mental health care providers in the US, the labyrinthine nature of the insurance requirements. It's going to be hard. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think that we should allow the, the idea that like 
people individually can often be resilient in the face of hardships mm-hmm. to ignore the fact that a lot of people will encounter massive structural barriers to feeling whole again. Yeah. I'm trying to resist the inclination to ask for individual advice about what people can do because that Mm -hmm. plays into the exact problem that you're you're talking about. And you're going to be like, you've got to stay hydrated, everyone. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like you know, do do yoga, go for a walk. I think that we've heard. Like we can all just rattle off a list of those tips, right? And I, I don't think that they're unimportant. But one of the people I spoke to said that America's just not very good at talking about loss and about giving space for grieving and mourning. And um, Mm -hmm. she said, by and large, it's all about consumption to help numb you out. It feels true, right? It feels like that's where we're headed, that you're expected to just deal with it. Um, You know, and Jim, you talked about healthcare workers. I, 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 you know, I, I, I feel like this is especially true for, for that community of people. Like there's a lot of, you yeah. almost certainly know this best than I, but like it, there's plenty of stigma around even seeking care for mental health um, and, and a lack of institutional support for nurses and doctors and, and other healthcare workers in doing so. And I worry for people who endured a long, long marathon of having to stare this pandemic really in the face yeah. And how they're going to be feeling now, even as things start improving nationally. Hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe that's that's some helpful uh, personal advice we could give people is, is talking uh, to people around you, uh, you know, about how you're feeling or it, it, at least asking uh, how they're feeling, especially and trying to make sure that they're they, they have a, a, a someone they can open up to. One person I spoke to talked about. Um, normalizing the collective trauma is going to be important in recovery mm. and, and I think she just meant like talking about this stuff this is sort of why I'm writing this piece like to to put um like to to put words to this experience that I suspect a lot of people are going to be um going through um yeah. you know, they, exactly what we talked about this this disconnect between expecting to feel better and actually mm. like not like taking time for that to happen Right. And it's often like I remember when we were kids, we used to kind of joke because my dad would always like get sick on his days off because he worked all the oh. time. And um, it was when he stopped this, like his body kind of gave out in construction, you know. Um, yeah. And so it feels a bit like that, too, because I know Jim and I were talking bef- before you called Ed about like people are taking off their masks. That's such a, you know, visual sign. OK, things are better again, but maybe that's the time then that people are going to it all hits you, maybe if yeah. you haven't yeah. been physically sick yourself. Yeah, I agree. And and I think you, you're right in, in talking about the, the physical aspects of this, too. Like, I've been saying to folks that everything I'm seeing now reminds me of, like, going to university for the first time. And, like, like, like your dad on his days off, like, as soon as terms finished, like, I got sicker than I've ever oh. been. <laughs> um, you know, you, you run and run and run. And the minute you stop, like, your body just gives out. And I think there's there are reasons for that, right? Like, the... Um, uh, stress affects the immune system and ironically mm. for this conversation makes people more vulnerable to respiratory viruses so not only do people become sicker they often mentally crash too um, mm. and and this is you know this is what we we discussed earlier that yeah. um often it's when 
you stop get to stop swimming and reach dry land that you start mm. to feel like you're actually drowning yeah it's <laughs> helpful to have you you put it into words Ed, and and, yeah. and uh, the piece is great and everyone should read it and speaking of numbing ourselves uh with consumption could you feed us a, a, a fact about animal sensation please that isn't <laughs> scooping yourself in the book too too, too badly oh my god okay um all right let me give you a cicada fact <laughs> um, so one of the things that everyone talks about with about cicadas is is the noise they make and it's going to be very very loud um yeah. for for people in in our neck of the woods gym but um what's interesting to me about cicadas and a lot of other insects that make airborne noises is that they also make other signals that we can't hear and that are deeply interesting so um Insects who live on plants often um, vibrate parts of their bodies to send vibrations through the surfaces of the plants they sit on. And these surface-borne vibrations are, are different to airborne sounds, um, and we often can't hear them. And if you sort of tap into them, which is fairly easy, you can just get a clip-on mic <laughs> and, and an amplifier that converts these inaudible vibrations into audible sounds, they sound really weird. Like really weird. Do you put the mic onto the the plant or something? Yeah. So I've 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 talked to uh, people from my book who who do this. Like they'll just go into like their gardens or like into (laughs) a park and just clip on a a little like um, a mic, like the kind of like a guitarist might use, and just put it on like a blade of grass um, onto something with an insect. And the noises you hear are astonishing. In airborne times, the pitch is very tied to size. So that's why mice squeak, Mm -hmm. elephants rumble, Mm -hmm. and they don't do, you know, elephants don't squeak, mice don't rumble. But Which is going to be a very good children's book. (laughs) (laughs) Elephants don't squeak. And then it's like, yes, they do. And there's a... (laughs) (laughs) But surface vibrations don't have that relationship. So a lot of these insects will make really deep noises or very melodic noises that sound almost like bird song. I love that. And also that seems like a doable experiment, like especially now that it's like cicada, you know, frenzy for people yeah. to do themselves. Although you don't need yeah. a mic to hear them. I, uh, yeah, but, but Ed is saying they make a whole selection of different noises, in, I think. In addition to those. That you can't hear, yeah. yeah. And that might be just um, weird and sort of ethereal and magical in a in way that people didn't, don't expect. Um, you can hear insects making noises that sound more like birds or frogs. Or Billie yeah. Eilish, it sounds like ethereal, magical. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, it, great to have you back and uh, hope everyone checks out the piece. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, folks. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Maeve, I, one of my very few childhood traumas was mm-hmm. I stepped on a cicada when I was very small. Oh. I must have stepped like just, I didn't kill it or crush it. It just went off. I was barefoot in my oh. backyard and it, it terrified me. Oh my God. So you, I mean, you I was like probably just dis- like, like, just barely, I was toddling around and I'm, I'm yeah, <laughs> oh, no. just able to remember things. And this thing that I stepped on, it sounds like <gasps> a, a fire alarm going on. <laughs> like, and yeah. it's this gross little bug. And, um, and it was upset. Yeah. It was not pleased with me. And I meant it no harm, but. 
Oh no. So that's I thought, when I, I ate thought it. when <laughs> And I became Also, you must have been the cicada. <laughs> Dr. Cicada. Two things that are not cool combining. <laughs> <laughs> but um you must have been tiny to like not even crush a cicada like you Maybe must have been I, doing little I baby must steps. have been I must have stepped like right next to it or been like my yeah. foot was you know an inch above it when it went off you know it was one of those situations and uh, mm-hmm. uh and that's one of your because yeah when Ed was talking about it I thought it sounded so amazing but I could tell you were like oh cicada is getting even more press <laughs> I was like, Jim doesn't like them. <laughs> uh, no, in fact, I uh, I quite like them, and I I. It was just um, that one. It was just that one guy. It was that one. You know, it was a bad mm. apple, and I don't hold it against all cicadas. <laughs> and I understand that not all cicadas. Um, yeah. Hashtag. Um, Absolutely, yeah. but um, that sounds awful, and also like that it happened outside because. The horrible childhood memory of animals I have is inside where it's controllable, which was a goldfish. But it's like, you know how to avoid goldfish, but with cicadas, you're just, you know, a hapless victim because they're everywhere. What trauma can come of a goldfish? Well, we had a very athletic one who would jump out of his, um, well, his or her tank, well, bowl, and it would jump out and furiously all the time kind of had a death wish and then it would jump out and once it jumped into my like waste paper basket and I could just hear it in there for so long and I couldn't find it um no Jim the goldfish was totally fine in the end I was the one who just couldn't handle it and I was like screeching and after what seemed like 10 minutes then my mom came down what are you screaming and then she I said the goldfish is in the bin (laughs) <laughs> she, had to, like, she had to like tip out he was totally fine he was leaping around the place and so then we had to get like a special plate to cover the bowl so that he stopped trying to you know kill himself yeah and this was last week <laughs> god yeah, i'm so sorry to hear that uh Maeve. Um, well then the last time i went to an aquarium i genuinely fainted you think that's related I'm not really sure, but I'm not a fainter, and I do hate fish now. A lot to unpack I mean, here. I think we <laughs> should save this for the Maze Fish Trauma episode. Um, okay, yeah, Jim, I'm sorry about... You probably shouldn't open the parcel I just sent you. It's quite a lot of cicadas. It's quite a lot. Yeah. You didn't really eat one ever, did you? I know they are edible but yeah that's a big thing that people people do i have not tried one myself you haven't. i have okay. had crickets but uh, i know i've been to your shows <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of trauma um social distance is produced by ac <laughs> valdez with help from kevin townsend we love hearing from our listeners if mm-hmm. there's something you'd like us to talk about on an upcoming show our email is social distance at the atlantic.com and you can call us too at 202-642-6487. And I had a much longer conversation with the Surgeon General about loneliness, family, and the government's response to the pandemic. For more of that interview, we hope you'll join us at In Pursuit of Happiness, which is a virtual event taking place tomorrow, May 20th. 
visit pursuitofhappiness.theatlantic.com for more information. And finally, as always, if you like this show and want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Never heard you read the credits so fast is when I said that. <laughs> Bye, Maeve. Bye.